All right, well, welcome to our New Testament survey. Last week, we began with an introduction and an overview of what we would be doing. And so this evening, we will begin by looking at the Gospel of Matthew. So if you want to go ahead and open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1, that's where we will begin. Now, uh, obviously, the Gospel bears the name of the Apostle Matthew. He was one of Christ's 12 disciples, uh, an apostle. He was, of course, a Jewish man who worked as a tax collector. So uh, he was Jewish, and he wrote uh, his Gospel, his account of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ from a Jewish perspective, obviously, and with a very thorough uh, knowledge and understanding of the Old Testament Hebrew scriptures, which we'll see uh, as we look at uh, his account. Now, depending on who you uh, read and who you listen to regarding uh, the Gospels themselves, uh, there is some disagreement over the dating of when uh, the Gospel of Matthew was written. Many scholars and commentators believe that Mark was written first and that Matthew uh, relied on Mark's account as he was compiling his own, and so they would date uh, Matthew sometime to the late 60s AD. Now, these are conservative scholars who are still putting Matthew uh, between 66 and 70 AD because uh, in the Olivet Discourse, which we will mention later tonight, uh, Jesus does uh, prophesy some things regarding the destruction of the temple and of Jerusalem, which of course happened in 70 AD. So conservative scholars would put Matthew as having written the gospel before those events happened. More liberal scholars would obviously say, well, he wrote it after the fact. Uh, so they're discounting uh, the fact that Jesus would have prophesied these things beforehand. Uh, in reading this, there are other scholars who do not believe that Mark was written first and that Matthew then relied on Mark's account, but rather, uh, going with the testimony of the early church, believe that Matthew was the first gospel that was written. Uh, I tend to lean that direction, and so that, that would date Matthew somewhere around 50 A.D., uh, is one of the earliest writings in the New Testament uh, alongside the book of Galatians, probably. Um, so Matthew is a Jewish man who is writing. If he's writing that early, uh, primarily his audience at that time would be Jewish Christians, uh, Jews in Jerusalem and Judea who have heard the gospel proclaimed at Pentecost and following and have accepted Jesus as the Messiah, the promised Messiah of the Old Testament. And so, um, obviously, the Holy Spirit inspiring Matthew still speaks to us today who are Gentiles, who are not raised in that Jewish culture, but Matthew was steeped in it and in the Old Testament scriptures. And so he, his personality and his, that does come through in his writing, that he's writing to largely a Jewish audience. And so what he is doing is presenting to us Christ as the fulfillment of, of the Old Testament prophecies concerning uh, the coming Messiah who would be the King of Israel. That is one of Matthew's primary concerns, which we'll see uh, as we move through the book. Now, an interesting thing to note about Matthew, if we were to outline the book very briefly, uh, is that you could just group it into three major pieces that are organized geographically. 
Matthew begins uh, in his introduction, which is basically chapter 1 through chapter 4, verse 11, uh, with Jesus uh, near uh, the Jordan River. So we have Jesus' birth, his uh, exodus to Egypt, his return to the land, and then his baptism in the Jordan River. And that's the first part of the story. The second uh, section, which is from chapter 4, verse 12, through the end of chapter 18, is Jesus' public ministry in Galilee. And then the final section, from chapter 19 through 28, is Jesus' public ministry as he moves into Judea and Jerusalem itself. And so we have the Jordan River, Galilee, and Jerusalem as Jesus is moving towards the epicenter of uh, Israel's spiritual life and, of course, towards uh, the conclusion of his ministry as well with his crucifixion. Matthew... uh, as I said, as a Jewish author writing to a Jewish audience steeped in the Old Testament scriptures, there are 55, at least 55, direct quotations from the Old Testament in the book of Matthew uh, and about twice that number of allusions to Old Testament texts or uh, ideas. This, compared to the other Gospels, Mark, Luke, and John combined quote the Old Testament 65 times. So Matthew is using the Old Testament a lot in comparison to the other gospel writers. Um, As we uh, look at Matthew's gospel, like I said, his concern is to present Jesus as the, the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises of a king who would uh, come as the Messiah to rule over Israel. And so if we think about um, what those promises were and what they entailed, and we go back to uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7 and God's covenant with David. If you'll remember, David desired to build a temple uh, for the Lord, and he was not permitted to do so. Uh, And so in 2 Samuel chapter 7, in verse 12, God is making a covenant with David. And so God says this to David. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he shall be my son. And then he goes on and says, If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. According to all these words and according to all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. So uh, obviously Solomon, uh, who is David's son, rules after David and does build the temple in Jerusalem. uh, But Solomon ultimately sins and dies and is buried, and so he is not Uh, the ultimate fulfillment of this covenant promise made to David. And so uh, one of Matthew's big points is to show us that Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise. And so uh, as the Old Testament story moves along and you move into uh, the writings of the prophets uh, during the exile and other times, We read in Isaiah chapter 9, and this is a passage that we're all familiar with, but Isaiah is speaking of the promised son who will come. 
And he says, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. And so uh, we have this promise. We also see in Daniel uh, chapter 2 that there are promises about uh, the Son of Man who will come with authority and and, uh, sit on the throne. And so this Old Testament hope and expectation of an offspring of David who will sit on the throne forever, uh, we find this fulfilled now uh, in Christ as we look at Matthew chapter 1, Matthew begins by saying the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, as we said in our Old Testament uh, sermon series on Sunday morning a few weeks ago, uh, Genesis talks about the book of the genealogy of Adam, and Matthew, beginning the New Testament, talks about the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And the, the only two places anywhere in the scripture where a genealogy is presented in that way, which is significant. Uh, but Matthew begins his gospel here by pointing out um, that Christ is the Messiah. He's the promised son of David and also the son of Abraham, to whom a promise had been made concerning his seed who would be a blessing to the nations. Now, one of the interesting things about the fact that Matthew begins his gospel with this genealogy uh, is the way he begins it and the way he ends it. Uh, And we'll make that comparison um, later when we get to the end of the gospel. But uh, there's an interesting uh, thing that Matthew is doing, alluding to some Old Testament ideas in, in beginning his gospel with this genealogy and then ending it the way he does with the Great Commission. Uh, The genealogy is divided into three sections. Uh, The beginning section from verse 2 through the beginning of verse 6 is the genealogy from Abraham uh, up to David. So this is the the pre-monarchy period. And then from 6, the second half of verse 6 through verse 11 uh, is the monarchy through the exile, and then the remainder of the genealogy is the exile up to Christ. And so he presents Jesus as the son of, of Abraham, uh, of course, who would be the father of many nations, and his seed had been promised to him, uh, which Paul tells us in Galatians is Christ. Interesting also that uh, he includes four Gentile women in this genealogy to make the point that even though he is presenting Jesus as the Christ, as the fulfillment of these Old Testament promises of a Messiah, a king for Israel, uh, the Gentiles are invited into this kingdom that is established as well, and we'll see that uh, elsewhere in the book of Matthew. Now, as we move into the birth narrative, uh, one of the things that Matthew records for us is um, in verse 21, when an angel is speaking, and he says, that she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, the name Jesus is the Greek rendering of the Hebrew name Joshua, uh, which means God saves. And uh, Joshua, of course, was the leader who led the people into the promised land. 
but interestingly, uh, as Matthew presents to us Jesus as the Messiah, as the promised king from the Old Testament, he says that, that he is to be named this because he will save his people from their sins, not from the Romans, not from their political enemies. He will save them from their sins. And so Matthew is clearly pointing out that Jesus is not just the son of David who will sit on the throne, not just the son of Abraham. He is the promised seed back in Genesis 3 that would crush the head of the serpent. And so Matthew is making that point here at the beginning. Uh, G.K. Beale and his... uh, commentary on this says that Jesus is the greater Joshua who will usher Israel into the promised land of the new creation upon defeating the devil. So he's not just to defeat uh, their political enemies as the people of Israel were when Joshua led them into Canaan, but he is to defeat Satan, the great adversary of our souls. And so then Matthew, in verse 22, says, So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. So there's a couple of interesting things right here in these two verses, and one of them is this formula that Matthew uses, that this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by by the Lord through the prophet. Matthew uses something like this uh, at least 10 times in his gospel, saying this is done so that it could be fulfilled what was written in the Old Testament. Uh, So he's clearly calling our attention back to the Old Testament promises of the Messiah. The other interesting thing is that he he quotes this passage from uh, the book of Isaiah, Uh, saying that they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. So obviously Matthew knew that some of his readers would not understand what Emmanuel meant. So even though he's a Jewish man writing to a Jewish audience, he expected others to read this as well. So he explains Emmanuel, it is God with us. This is the whole point of much of the Old Testament. Uh, In the garden, God was with Adam and Eve in the garden. Uh, When God leads Israel out of Egypt, God is with them, visibly with them in the pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of fire at night. Uh, His presence in the tabernacle and the temple was with the children of Israel. Uh, Moses, in fact, said that they would not go unless they were positive that God was with them. Uh, And so Matthew is making the point that Jesus is God with us. And this is a theme that he carries throughout his gospel. If you'll remember, I said we could uh, outline it into three sections organized by geography, and this being the first section. But the second session, which uh, goes from the middle of chapter 4 through the end of chapter 18, when we get to the end of chapter 18, we find Jesus saying this uh, to his disciples. In verse 20 of chapter 18, For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. So here in the second section of Matthew, Jesus is promising his presence with his disciples. And then, of course, at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, uh, when Jesus gives the great commission to the church, telling them, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you 
always, even to the end of the age. So this is a theme that Matthew carries throughout all three sections of his gospel, this idea of God with us, that Jesus is the embodiment of that. And so he's presenting to us Jesus as uh, Emmanuel, as the Messiah, as the King of the Jews. And so we see that as we move into chapter 2, and the wise men come from the east uh, seeking the King of the Jews. And they ask Herod there in verse 2, where is he who has been born King of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. Uh, And so Jesus is this king. And so what happens is um, Herod doesn't want a rival to his power. And so he behaves just like Pharaoh did in the Old Testament in the book of Exodus um, and kills all of the young boys uh, of that age. And so there's a parallel that Matthew is obviously calling our attention back to that story of uh, the Exodus. He he even says in verse 15, um, well, verse 14, that Joseph arose took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt. And it was there until the death of Herod that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. Now that was spoken concerning the nation of Israel that God called out of Egypt in the Exodus and called Israel his son. But here it's applied to Christ as the fulfillment of that, as the true Israel of God. Uh, And so he went to Egypt and was brought back from Egypt so that that would be fulfilled. So Herod attempts to kill Christ just like Pharaoh attempted to kill uh, the Jewish boys in Exodus chapter 1. And Matthew draws our attention to that. Uh, by pointing this fact out that they flee to Egypt and that he is called out of Egypt. Uh, And so if we think about the birth of Moses uh, there in Exodus, Pharaoh tries to kill all the young boys. Herod tries to kill all the young boys. Moses is saved. Jesus is saved. Um, Moses then goes on to deliver the people of Israel, out of bondage in Egypt, and Christ has come, Matthew tells us, to deliver us from our sins, from our slavery to sin. Moses goes on in his ministry after they leave uh, Egypt to do what? He leads the people to Mount Sinai, to the mountain, which is another theme that we will see repeatedly in the book of Matthew. Uh, And Moses delivers God's law to the people on Mount Sinai. What does Christ go on to do? Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount. He goes up on a mountain. He delivers God's law to the people. Uh, So there obviously are connections here. Moses is the mediator of the Mosaic Covenant, the Old Covenant. Christ is the mediator of the New Covenant. Moses leads the people through the wilderness to the Promised Land. Christ is leading us to the heavenly Promised Land Uh, which he goes to prepare for us. So there are obvious thematic connections there between Moses and Christ here in the Gospel of Matthew. Then in chapter 3, we're presented with John the Baptist. uh, And Matthew writes in chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, 
saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Uh, So John is presented to us as a prophet, uh, and he is preparing for the kingdom. Uh, And you'll notice that he said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's another theme that we see repeated throughout the Gospel of Matthew. Mark and Luke uh, primarily use the phrase the kingdom of God, but Matthew primarily uses this phrase the kingdom of heaven. And there's a reason for that that we'll get to uh, here in a few minutes. But um, John is a prophet. He is preparing uh, for Uh, the coming of the kingdom of heaven with the coming of Christ, the king. Uh, And so then in verse 9, we see uh, that John speaking to the Pharisees says, Do not think to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And so even John is making the point that the true children of Abraham, uh, who are the children of God, are those who are Uh, by faith, the sons of Abraham, and not by ethnicity. And so we have John baptizing Jesus here in the latter half of chapter 3, and we see pictured for us here some things that we've noticed in our study of Genesis. Water, uh, the spirit, a dove. Uh, There's obvious connections here to the creation of the world and the spirit of God hovering over the waters, the flood of Noah, and the the wind that God creates, uh, and the dove that is pictured there for us in Genesis 8. And so this is drawing our attention to Christ uh, as not only uh, the greater Noah, but as God himself. And so, you know, one of the interesting things is, is that Jesus goes to John to be baptized. And he says that it must be done in order to fulfill all righteousness. Uh, And so what does he mean by that? Well, Craig Kinnear in his uh, commentary says, Jesus' baptism, like his impending death, would be vicarious. It is embraced on behalf of others with whom the Father has called him to identify. So Jesus is getting baptized for us. John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. Christ has come to bear our sins. And so he is passing through the waters just as Noah passed through the waters, just as the children of Israel passed through the Red Sea and then through the Jordan River to get into the Promised Land. Christ is passing through the waters of baptism uh, on our behalf uh, because of our sins that he will bear for us. Then in chapter 4, we have the 40 days of Christ's trial in the wilderness. Uh, which, of course, calls our attention to Israel's 40 years in the wilderness uh, before they enter the promised land. But it also recalls Adam and Eve in the garden uh, when the Satan comes to tempt them. And here Satan comes to tempt Christ uh, in the wilderness. Adam failed to drive the serpent out of the garden and failed to faithfully trust in God's word, instead believing Satan's lie. Uh, Israel failed to drive their enemies out of the promised land Uh, And they failed to obey the covenant that they had been given. But Jesus is faithful and obedient to the word of God, and he triumphs over the serpent. And so he is the last Adam and the true Israel. And so we see the first temptation is much like it was with Adam and Eve, a temptation to food uh, in verses 2 through 4. When he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he was hungry. Now when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. 
But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so then uh, the second temptation, which is in verses 5 through 7, uh, if you'll remember when when Satan tempted Adam and Eve, he twisted God's word subtly, questioned it. Here, he quotes it accurately, but he's misusing it. And so Christ corrects his misuse of the scripture, which Adam should have done in the garden and failed to do. And then in the third uh, temptation, in verses 8 through 11, uh, Satan is questioning who has dominion. And he is claiming dominion for himself. Now, of course, Adam was supposed to have had dominion over the beasts, and instead he let Satan, he let the serpent rule over him. But here, Christ Uh, corrects that once again and says that you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And so where Adam failed, Christ succeeds and triumphs over Satan. And so that's the end of the first section of Matthew. Beginning in verse 12 of chapter 4, then we move to Jesus' ministry in Galilee. Um, And it begins again with prophecy being fulfilled. Uh, You'll see the quotes there in verses 15 and 16 where Matthew is quoting from Isaiah chapter 9 verses 1 and 2 uh, that Jesus is um, fulfilling these prophecies coming from Galilee. Uh, In verse 17 we see that Uh, Jesus speaks and begins to preach and say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so there again is this uh, phrase, the kingdom of heaven, uh, and it's at hand. It is nearby, the long-awaited kingdom of the Old Testament. Uh, In Exodus chapter 19, Moses goes and meets with God on the mountain to receive the law of God. Jesus now ascends the mount at the beginning of chapter 5 and teaches the law on the mountain uh, to the people, and he teaches it accurately and corrects uh, the misapplication of the law and the the poor teaching of the Pharisees. Uh, And over and over again in Scripture, we see that the mountain is where God dwells. Uh, Ezekiel even refers to Eden as the mountain of the Lord. Of course, Mount Sinai, uh, and then we have here this mountain, and of course, uh, Mount Zion, where Jerusalem is located. All important mountains where God dwells with his people. And so in verse 17, uh, we see that Jesus tells us that, Do not think that I have come to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. And so what Jesus is teaching here is not uh, counter in any way to the law of the Old Testament. He is simply rightly explaining it, rightly applying it to the inner man uh, and fulfilling the law of God. And basically what he is teaching here is kingdom ethics. Uh, The law of God in the Old Testament taught the people of God how they were to live in the midst of a corrupt world. Jesus is doing the same here in chapters 5 through 7, teaching us how we are to live as his people. Then in chapter 8, we see that the, the kingdom itself includes the sorts of people that were not included uh, under the old law. And so we see at the beginning of chapter 8 a leper uh, who is unclean, and then we also see a Gentile in the centurion's servant uh, that Christ is including amongst the people that he serves. And so he's welcoming the unclean and the Gentiles into the kingdom. And then in verse 16, we see Jesus doing what uh, Adam failed to do, which is casting the serpent out. 
Uh, when evening had come, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. Here's Matthew again, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, he himself took our infirmities and bore our sickness. So uh, Jesus continually casts out uh, the, the demons, uh, fulfilling that duty and that responsibility which Adam failed in the garden. And he cast them out with a word. And also... Uh, we see in verse 26, sandwiched in between two episodes of Jesus casting out uh, the demonic forces, um, that there is a, a storm on the lake and Jesus is in the boat with the disciples uh, and they wake him up because he's sleeping, saying, Lord, save us, we are perishing. And in verse 26, but he said to them, why are you fearful, O you of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. So with a word, he casts out Satan. With a word, he calms the storm, uh, clearly demonstrating uh, who he is. And in verse 27, the disciples recognize it, saying, So the men marveled, saying, Who can this be that even the winds and the sea obey him? Well, he's God. That's who he is. And Matthew is clearly alluding uh, back to Psalm 89, verses 8 through 9, and Psalm 107, verses 24, 25, and 29, where it ascribes to God alone uh, the authority to calm the sea. Uh, and so then moving into chapter 9, Jesus does something else that only God can do, and that is, is that he forgives someone of their sins. Uh, and then... Later in chapter 29 and verse 25, uh, we see an episode where Jesus uh, comes to someone whose uh, daughter has passed away. Uh, and he says in verse 24, make room for the girl was not dead but sleeping and they ridiculed him. But when the crowd was put outside, he went in and took her by the hand and the girl arose. And the report, report of this went out into all that land. And so not only does Jesus calm the storm, but he gives life to the dead. These are, he forgives sins. These are things that only God has the authority to do. Matthew is quite clearly making the point by telling us uh, these events that Jesus is God with us. Uh, so then in chapter 10, uh, he begins to call uh, the 12 disciples and to give them power to cast out uh, the spirits. Uh, the 12 disciples, of course, corresponding to the 12 tribes of Israel under the Old Covenant. And they are then empowered by Christ to go and to cast out, um, to, as he says in verse 7, as you go, preach, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand, heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. So he has empowered them to do uh, the things that he does to have dominion over the serpent. Uh, and then in verse, chapter 11, um, verses 16 through 19, uh, our attention is drawn back to John the Baptist. Um, Jesus says in verse 16, But to what shall I liken this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to their companions, saying, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We mourned to you, and you did not lament. For John came, neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. And the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look, a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is justified by her children. And so Jesus is drawing our attention uh, back to John 
and their rejection of John the Baptist, and if they rejected the one who prophesied the Lamb of God, then of course they will reject uh, the object of his preaching as well. In chapter 12, we see that Jesus exercises dominion and authority over even the Sabbath itself, which was, of course, established at the creation by God and calling himself the Lord of the Sabbath. And then in verses 15 through 21, uh, Jesus is clearly identified with the uh, servant of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, uh, the servant of the Lord who does justice and uh, wins Gentiles for the kingdom. And so Jesus is not only the Messiah and the King, he is God with us, he is the Lord of the Sabbath, uh, and he is the servant of God uh, prophesied in the book of Isaiah. And so Matthew continues through one chapter after another, later in chapter 12, uh, again uh, referring to Christ as the son of David, uh, who casts out Satan. He is Israel's king and their Lord. Um, And then in chapter 12, verse 38, we see that it says, Then some of the scribes and the Pharisees answered, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. So Jesus has done many miracles by this point, and yet they want something more. And so he answered and said them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And the men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment, in the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And indeed, a greater than Jonah is here. And so Christ is pointing back to the prophet Jonah and his ministry in Nineveh and saying, that was a type. I am the antitype. I am the greater Jonah. He goes on to call himself the greater Solomon. Uh, So he is obviously looking uh, at the Old Testament typologically. Jesus is doing it. We've talked about that in the last few weeks, that way of uh, looking at the Old Testament. So we see Christ himself doing that. As we move into chapter 13 now, we uh, enter into a large portion of Jesus' teaching uh, where he begins to teach on the kingdom of heaven. Uh, And there are many connections and allusions, which we referred to last week, uh, between chapter 13 of Matthew and Daniel chapter 3 uh, with the fiery furnace uh, and that sort of thing. But uh, Jesus begins here in chapter 13 to teach in parables. It says in verse 3, Then he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, and then he tells the parable of the sower. So why would he uh, teach in parables? And why is it significant that Matthew points that out to us? Well, again, Matthew is pointing to how Christ is connected to the Old Testament and the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Well, if we think back at the Old Testament, Moses and then Elijah both spoke plainly to the people of God. Uh, They spoke directly uh, God's words. But as we move through the story of the Old Testament, and the people of Israel are rebellious, and they reject God's words. They're not faithful to the covenant. We begin to see the prophets using more and more parables as they teach. Uh, In fact, in Ezekiel, I can turn there real quick, Ezekiel chapter 24, God speaks to the prophet Ezekiel, Uh, And says this, Son of man, write down the name of the day, this very day, the king of Babylon started his siege against Jerusalem this day. 
and utter a parable to the rebellious house and say to them, thus says the Lord God. And so then he gives him a parable that he is to speak to them. Um, And then, so Ezekiel is speaking to the people uh, with this parable. Isaiah in chapter 6 and in chapter 7 and in chapter 8 is told to speak to the people in parables. Uh, And one of the reasons he is told to do that uh, is to continue to harden them in their rebellion. And so as Christ speaks to the people in the parables, the disciples ask him in verse 10, and the disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? He answered and said to them, because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. And so there's an allusion there, as I said last week, back to Daniel uh, and Daniel uh, interpreting Nebuchadnezzar's dream and Nebuchadnezzar saying that your God is the God who understands mysteries. And so Matthew is alluding to that. But then he, Jesus goes on to quote Isaiah, saying that this is fulfilled now in verse 14. And in them the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, which says, Hearing you will hear and shall not understand, and seeing you will see and not perceive. For the hearts of this people have grown dull. Their ears are hard of hearing, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn, so that I should heal them. So one of the reasons Jesus speaks to the people in parables is A, to fulfill prophecy given in Isaiah, but B, so that God's purpose of election might stand, that those who are to be hardened will be hardened further by the parables, and those who are elect and will understand will be moved. And so we even see this uh, in the Old Testament. Take the example of David uh, with his sin with Bathsheba. Nathan, the prophet, comes and speaks to him in a parable. And what does the parable do? David isn't hardened by it, but he is stirred up with righteous anger over the example of the parable, and Nathan tells him it's a parable, and you are who it is about, and David is moved to repentance at that point. So the parables serve their purpose to harden the reprobate and to move the elect to repentance and obedience to the word of God. And throughout chapter 13, Matthew continues to use this phrase, the kingdom of heaven. He uses it in verse 24, 31, 33, 44, 45, 47, and 52. Uh, He's using this phrase a lot as Jesus tells these parables comparing the kingdom of heaven to various things. Uh, And so uh, G.K. Beale in his commentary says, the heavenly dimension of God's kingdom erupts into the earthly ministry of Jesus. And that is Matthew's point. Instead of just calling it the kingdom of God, he calls it the kingdom of heaven because he is showing that God is with us in Christ. And so the kingdom of heaven, which is God's dwelling place, is now here. It's erupting into the physical because God is with us in the person of Christ. Uh, And so as we continue to move through Matthew's gospel quickly, um, we have in chapter 14 the feeding of the 5,000, which interestingly is the only miracle that is told in all four gospels. Uh, Many of them are told in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, 
and John is quite different, but this one is actually told in John as well. Um, and it's about God's abundant provision through Christ. And there are some allusions here back to the people of Israel uh, wandering in the wilderness. It says in verse 13, when Jesus heard it, that is about the death of John the Baptist, he departed from there by boat to a deserted place by himself. But when the multitudes heard it, they followed him on foot from the cities. And so this great multitude gathers um, and Jesus teaches them, uh, but then he feeds them because they are hungry and they're in a deserted place, much like the wilderness in which the people of Israel journeyed for 40 years and were fed by God with bread from heaven. And so Jesus multiplies bread and feeds the people. as a clear allusion to that episode in the Old Testament and the fact that Jesus is God. He is feeding the people with bread from heaven. Then Jesus again uh, ascends a mountain in verse 22 uh, to seek the Father in prayer. And then we have uh, an episode of Jesus walking on the water. Uh, the wind, we are told, is contrary. Uh, as the disciples are in the boat, um, the wind is contrary, it says in verse 24. So again, we have uh, water we have wind, this time the wind is against them, and Christ comes showing his dominion over the water, not just by stilling it with a word, but actually by walking on it. Uh, and so he is the Lord of, over the storm, and so he walks on the water, um, and then he eventually does calm the storm, and at the end of it, it says in verse 33, then those who were in the boat came and worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. And so the disciples begin to recognize Christ for who he is, not just as a promised king, but as God himself. Uh, in chapter 15, uh, then we see Jesus uh, continuing to teach um, and talking about uh, the evil that is in the hearts of man uh, and how it is not what is on the outside and what is taken into man that corrupts him, but it is what is in man that corrupts him. And so that even casts our minds back to where we are in Genesis on Sunday mornings where we're told that every imagination of man's heart is evil continually from his youth. And so Jesus is teaching that for us here. Jesus is on the mountain again uh, by the end of chapter 15 and verse 29. Uh, Jesus departed from there, skirted the Sea of Galilee, and went up on the mountain and sat down. And the great multitudes came to him, and so he begins to heal them uh, and teach them again, and he feeds them one more time. And so we again see this theme of the mountain running through uh, the Gospel of Matthew. The mountain is where God's people go to meet with him, and we see multiple times the multitudes coming to Jesus on the mountain to be fed both physically and spiritually. And then in verse chapter 16, obviously uh, a big moment here in the gospel and in the life of the disciples. Uh, in chapter 16, Jesus asks the disciples, who do people say that I am? Uh, and they say, some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And so they Peter confesses Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah, the promised King of Israel, but also the Son of God. He is God with us. And so um, 
Peter has this high moment there in verse 16. Of course, it's the Apostle Peter, so it doesn't take very long for him to uh, move on from that high point to a very low point uh, in verse 23 when Jesus now rebukes Peter and says, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. What happened was as Peter confessed him to be the Christ, to be the Son of God, but Peter had an idea of what the Christ was, that he was a political leader who would rescue them from their enemies, from their political enemies. Uh, but Matthew has already told us Jesus came to rescue us from our slavery to sin, and Peter did not yet understand that, and so Jesus rebukes him at that point. Uh, in chapter 17, uh, Jesus is once again on a mountain. Now, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And we have here the Mount of Transfiguration. And again, uh, there are allusions back to the Exodus account. In Exodus 24:15, Moses and Joshua go on the mountain to meet with God, and we're told that a cloud descends and covers the mountain. Uh, and here in chapter 17, verse 5, while he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice from out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. And so once again, we're drawn back to uh, the comparison with Moses meeting God on the mountain, and here Jesus is God on the mountain, and the Father acknowledges him as such. Um, so then in chapter uh, 18, or here, yeah, in chapter 18, uh, we are coming to the close of Jesus' ministry in Galilee uh, with some more teaching that he does uh, concerning the kingdom of heaven and some more parables. And then in chapter 19, Jesus moves his ministry into Judea. Chapter 19, verse 1, Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished these sayings that he departed from Galilee and came to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And great multitudes followed him, and he healed them there. And so he's making his way towards uh, Jerusalem. And again, we have a focus on the kingdom of heaven uh, in verse 23 and in chapter 20, verse 1. Uh, and this focus on the kingdom of heaven uh, as uh, the eschatological kingdom that is promised in the Old Testament that is now being inaugurated in Christ's earthly ministry. In chapter 20, verse 7, we are, 17, we are told that he is going uh, to Jerusalem. Now, Jesus, going up to Jerusalem, took the twelve disciples aside on the road uh, and begins to teach them and speak to them about his impending death. And so, as he enters Jerusalem, uh, he is addressed uh, by some blind men wishing to receive their sight who call him, uh, in chapter 20, verse 31, uh, they call him both Lord and Son of David, uh, acknowledging him uh, as such. And then in chapter 21, we have the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, again, which is attended with Matthew telling us that these things were done, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Uh, and so this is uh, a quotation from uh, Zechariah chapter 9, uh, verse 9. Um, the context of Zechariah is that this king who is coming to them on a donkey has defeated their enemies and he is coming in victory to save them and to deliver them from the enemies that he has just defeated. And so Jesus is coming into Jerusalem 
uh, having already defeated Satan at the temptation in the wilderness and about to decisively uh, put an end to Satan's kingdom on the cross. And then uh, we're told that the multitudes in verse 9 who went before and those who followed cried out saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And so they're quoting from Psalm 18, which again is a psalm of deliverance uh, concerning uh, the one who would sit on the throne of David and deliver them. So again, more allusions and quotations back to the Old Testament that Jesus is the fulfillment of these Old Testament prophecies. Then in chapter 21, verse 13, Jesus goes to cleanse the temple. He quotes from Isaiah there saying that my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. And in that passage in Isaiah, um, the temple is being lifted up as a place that all of the nations would come to to worship God. And so Jesus, by calling our attention to that passage, is saying that the kingdom is bigger than just ethnic Israel. It includes the Gentiles as well. So Jesus is um, now pronouncing uh, his series of woes um, against uh, the Jewish leaders uh, as we move into chapter 22, chapter 23. Um, he pronounces these, these woes against them. And again, this is Old Testament language uh, that the prophets used. Isaiah chapter 3, verses 9 and 11. Jeremiah 48, verse 1. Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 23. In all those places, the prophets say, Woe to you, and then name uh, someone and pronounce God's judgment and coming destruction on them. And Jesus does that here. Woe to you, blind guides, he says in 23, verse 16, who say, whoever swears by the temple, it is nothing, but whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he is obliged to perform it. So he, he pronounces this series of woes against them and begins to speak about the temple. Uh, and then in chapter 24, uh, in verse 1, he's, then Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. And so Jesus prophesies uh, the destruction of the temple and Jerusalem. Uh, and again, he does so on the Mount of Olives. In verse 3, now he sat on the Mount of Olives and the disciples came to him uh, and he explains these things to them. And so this is the Olivet Discourse that runs uh, through all of chapter 24 and ch chapter 25 uh, where Jesus is explaining the impending destruction of the temple in Jerusalem which will happen in 70 AD along with some uh, prophecies concerning the very end and some more parables. Then in chapter 26, verse 12, um, Jesus is anointed by Mary at Bethany, and Jesus says, In pouring out this fragrant oil on my body, she did it for my burial. And so he announces that we are moving uh, towards the end here. He holds the Passover with his disciples, celebrates the Passover, and of course institutes the Lord's Supper. And again, this is an Old Testament ordinance of the nation of Israel um, that Jesus applies to himself typologically, that he is the Lamb of God. This is the new covenant. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. And so he's saying the Passover was really about me. Uh, he is the Lamb of God, and he is God with us. 
And so he is applying that Old Testament uh, passage and institution to himself. In chapter 26, verse 31, Jesus then says, All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. And so that's a passage from Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7, that Jesus is quoting and applying to himself uh, as the good shepherd. And then in verse 64 of this chapter, Jesus said to him, It is as you said, nevertheless I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And so he is uh, uh, referencing there Daniel chapter 7 verse 13, uh, calling himself the Son of Man in Daniel's vision, uh, who is seated with the Ancient of Days in power. Chapter 27, verses 9 and 10, we're told that even Judas's manner of death was a fulfillment uh, of a prophecy in the book of Jeremiah. And then we have Jesus' passion, uh, his trial, uh, the soldiers mocking Jesus. And in cha chapter 27, verse 28, it says, They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. When they had twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand, and they bowed down the knee to, before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And the interesting thing about that verse is that they make a crown of thorns. Uh, and if we think back to Genesis 3 and the fall, part of the curse was that the earth would now produce thorns. Christ is the promised seed who is undoing the curse. And he is crowned with those thorns from the curse. And they mock him as being the king of the Jews, not realizing that he is the king of the cosmos. He is the king of all. Uh, and so uh, we move now to his crucifixion. And again, Matthew uh, calls our attention back to Old Testament passages. Uh, they crucified him and divided his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Now, interestingly there, he's quoting Psalm 22, which was written by David and calling David a prophet. And, of course, Jesus quotes the same psalm uh, in verse 46. At about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? which is the first verse of Psalm 22, calling our attention to that psalm which details uh, the crucifixion, the piercing of his hands, the piercing of his side, uh, that sort of thing. Uh, the temple veil is torn in two when Christ dies. Um, in verse 51 and 52, And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked, and the rocks were split. Uh, and... Interestingly, commentators note that the veil in the temple was made up of different colored materials that were meant to represent all of creation, uh, the different colors representing the ocean and the sky and the land, uh, and it's torn in two, and the veil was there uh, to separate God in his holiness and the Holy of Holies from humanity. And so that veil is ripped apart. Uh, there is no longer that separation God with us in Christ, his sacrifice, his death on the cross has atoned for our sins. We now have direct access to God through him and no longer uh, do we have that separation between us and God. And so then in chapter 28, of course, we have uh, the resurrection. 
In verse 5, it tells us as the women came to the tomb that an angel answered and said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come, see the place where the Lord lay, and then go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead and indeed is going before you into Galilee. And so... Uh, We have the resurrection of Christ. He is victorious not only over Satan, but over death itself. Uh, The curse really has been undone in Christ. And so uh, the women uh, meet Christ himself, and what do they do? Uh, They, it says in verse 9, and they went to tell us, as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, Rejoice. So they came and held him by the feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. And of course, uh, when they go to Galilee, of course, we're on a mountain again. In verse 16, Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee to the mountain, which Jesus had appointed for them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. So we have uh, the women and the disciples both worshipping him. I think it's interesting that it is honest enough to tell us that some of them still harbored some doubts uh, at this point. But Matthew now closes uh, his gospel uh, here on the mountain again uh, with the Great Commission. Jesus came and spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Now there are a couple of interesting things here. One is as Matthew is contrasting this with uh, the Jewish leaders. The guard had gone and reported that Christ was missing from the tomb. They reported the things that happened there, uh, and the elders, the Jewish leaders, uh, consulted together. They bribed the soldiers with a large sum of money. In verse 13, it says, saying, tell them his disciples came at night and stole him away while we slept. So they commission the soldiers to go lie, to go tell to others a lie. Jesus commissions his disciples to go and speak the truth concerning God to all people. So there's a contrast there. But another interesting uh, aspect of this is, like I said, Matthew began his gospel with a genealogy, and he ends it with this great commission. What else begins with a genealogy and ends with a commission? Well, Chronicles. If you'll remember from our Old Testament survey, Chronicles is the last book in the Old Testament according to the traditional Hebrew arrangement. And Chronicles begins with a genealogy. And it just jumps right into it. Adam, Seth, Enosh, Canaan. So it it begins with a genealogy. How does Chronicles end? All the way at the end of Chronicles uh, Chronicles 2, at the very end in chapter 36, it says this, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. Well, that's Very similar language to what Matthew has been using over and over again in his gospel. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, All the kingdoms of the earth the Lord God of heaven has given me, and he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is among you of all his people? May the Lord his God be with him and let him go up. Now, the great commission of Christ, of course, is greater than the commission of Cyrus because all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. 
whereas Cyrus says that the God of heaven gave him authority on the earth. Jesus then tells them to go to all the nations, not just to Jerusalem, and to teach them all things that have been commanded. And where Cyrus says, may the Lord his God be with him, Jesus says, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Uh, So Matthew clearly is drawing our attention back to Chronicles, which was written, we said, likely by the, the priest Ezra to the people as they returned from exile back to the promised land. Jesus is the Messiah of the Old Testament, the promised one who will deliver his people from their sins, bringing them from exile back to God. And he ends it with this commission, which is greater than Cyrus's commission. And again, reinforces that theme that Matthew began with and now ends with of Emmanuel, God with us. Let's pray.